You can open your Bibles to Judges chapter 6. I once heard a story about a man who he committed some heinous crime, and it was the kind of crime, I don't remember the particulars of what's, what the details were of the crime, but it was the kind of crime that when people hear about it, they automatically just hate you for it type of deal. He was public enemy number one. He was, he was sentenced to life in prison without parole. Public en- enemy number one for what he did until there was another man who ended up taking that role by doing something very different. There was a pastor who lived in the town where this man was imprisoned. He went to go see this man. He shared the good news of the gospel with him, and the man didn't repent right away, but with, after repeated meetings and, and going over the wonders of the gospel numerous times, this man eventually did repent and trust in Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins. Well, somehow that information got out to the community that this man who had committed these awful atrocities, that this man had repented and believed in Jesus Christ. And can you imagine how the community might have responded? You would think, you would expect that they would respond similarly to the angels in heaven over one sinner who repents, that they would respond with joy in knowing that that this individual has turned from his wicked ways. But that is not how they responded. They responded more akin to Jonah when God had mercy on the city of Nineveh. They were angry. They hated this criminal for his crimes, and they wanted nothing more for than for him to rot in jail and then to spend an eternity in hell. That is what they wanted for this man. Rather than rejoicing that he repented, they, they turned their anger on, onto the pastor and persecuted the pastor, including sending hate mail and death threats to his house because he dared to bring the good news of the gospel to such an evil man because he didn't deserve the gospel. What the people of that community were missing is that their actions of hatred towards this man left them no more morally superior than the criminal himself. Jesus says that if you harbor hatred in your heart, then you're no better than a murderer and have even committed murder in your heart. Now, did that criminal deserve God's mercy? No. He, he didn't deserve that pastor to come before him and bring the good news to visit him. He did deserve to die in his sins and to pay the eternal penalty for what he did. But if God dealt with each of us according to what we deserve, would any of us be better off? No, not really. Truly, we deserve God's swift and righteous judgment, and yet God has mercy. Mercy on sinners who deserve the eternal fires of hell. In our text today, we're going to see another expression of God's mercy. Expression of God's mercy upon a people who have proven time and time again that they don't deserve God's mercy and yet they shall receive it. If, again, if you haven't yet turned there, we're in Judges chapter 6. As we have moved through this book, we have observed the, the downward cycle of the judges, 
Not only are these accounts cyclical in that we see the same patterns repeating themselves, but society continues to get worse and worse as they degrade throughout the course of the book. The people follow the Lord as long as the previous judge is alive, but as soon after their departure, they go from that that cycle from security to sin to suffering to supplication to salvation to security and around and around the carousel goes back around to sin once again, except again, it is that downward cycle. In this cycle, we're going to observe, observe, begin observing today. We begin with the life of Gideon, and Gideon gets, there's, gets more detail than anybody else in the book of Judges. Gideon gets more time than anyone else in the book of Judges. We have more detail about Gideon's judgeship than any of those that we've seen so far. Gideon is a name that many of us are familiar with. Sometimes we look at some of these other judges and, okay, Shamgar, that's not a name that we're super familiar with. But Gideon, now Gideon we know, right? We know that name. We know some of that story. So often Gideon is held up as a man of great faith, and some consider him to be one of the heroes of the book. While there is much to be commended with Gideon, we also find that he is a man with serious faults. Though there are some great stories from Gideon's life, by the end of his life we see that he himself is leading the people into idolatry. The one who himself was supposed to lead them out and away from idolatry is a cause of stumbling himself. Despite Gideon's fault, we, we find that his judgeship itself is an act of God's mercy on a nation that did not deserve it. Let's look at our text and see what God's Word says. First, we see the people's oppression, and we are in Judges chapter 6, beginning with verse 1, the people's oppression. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey, for they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste the land as they came in. Comparatively speaking, we might see that in terms of the, the cycle of oppression and suffering that the people experience, this is one of the shorter times. We see some of the other stories that the, that the Canaanites had rulership over Israel for 20 years or for 8 years or for whatever number of years. This one's one of the shorter time periods, only 7 years. However, it seems to make up for its brevity with its severity. The oppression is significant, and we see significant detail about the nature of the oppression, and it is striking. 
The oppression was so significant that people made dens and caves and strongholds to hide in to withdraw when the Midianites would come and raid the land. This makes me think of stories of, of World War II when the Germans would come in with their planes with a blitzkrieg. The air raid sirens would go off. All the people would go to their bomb shelters as quickly as possible. I also think of the period of the Cold War when it was at its height with the Cuban Missile Crisis and many people were building bomb shelters even within their homes fearing a nuclear holocaust that could come across the land at any moment. And there were regular duck and cover drills that were done in schools to, to prepare just in case the blast would come, how to prepare yourself. That's what the Israelites, in a sense, were dealing with. When the alarm was sent, when the Amalekites were coming, when the Midianites were coming, it's time to hide. Get into your caves, get into your dens, get into your shelters. Because the Midianites, the Amalekites, they're coming. These dens seem to be set up in such a way for the house the people for an extended period of time because the text appears to indicate that when the Midianites' raiders would come upon, they didn't just come in and then leave real quick. They set up shop for a little bit, right? They came in with their tents. They came in with their camels. They, they came in in such a way that they weren't there just, just in a day and then they were gone. No, they were there and they were seeking to do everything they could to consume all the resources of the land, laying the land absolutely desolate and waste such that there was no crops left, no sustenance in Israel, as it says in verse 4. No sheep, no ox, no donkey. They took it all. A land can only sustain such oppression for, for so long before it gets to the breaking point. Eventually, there will be nothing left to eat. No ability to store up enough food in the dens and the mountains. If you wanted to make a nation not a nation, this would be a good tactic to employ. Eliminate all source of food in the land. This is the plight of the people. And so they cry out to the Lord, verse 6. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. Again, we shouldn't mistake this crying out as a, as a cry of repentance. In fact, as we're going to move into this story further and further, we will see that the people hadn't repented of their idolatry. As we've previously discussed, this is the kind of prayer that is, uh, often is in the, on the lips of, of pagans when they run into difficult times in their life. Oh, Lord, if you're there, help me. God, if you exist, I need you to show up in this moment. Not a true prayer of repentance, and yet, God responds. God sends a prophet to explain to the people why they are in the predicament that they are in. And so we see the prophet's explanation. The prophet's explanation we find in Judges 6, verses 7 through 10. 
When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord, your God. You shall not fear the God of the Amorites in whose land that you dwell, but you have not obeyed my This unnamed prophet appears on the scene and he declares, he explains why these things are happening, why these things are unfolding. Thus says the Lord, I've done these things for you. I've rescued you out of Egypt. I have brought you into this land. I have established you. And I have told you that I am your God and you must obey my voice. And the devastating words of the last line of verse 10, but you have not. You have not obeyed my voice. God had issued commands, and they failed to obey. In some ways, as we look at this declaration by the prophet, this, it almost seems like an incomplete word. Most of the time, and we would find this pattern throughout prophecies, uh, throughout the, we, we find it earlier in the book of Judges, we find it all throughout the Old Testament, when a prophet would come and he would give a declaration to the people, this is who your God is, this is what he has done, and this is what you have done. Therefore, what we would expect to hear after that is the pronouncement of judgment. Therefore, because of your crimes, because of what you have done, this is what I'm going to do against you. This is the judgment I'm bringing upon you. I will not fight for you, as he says in in the uh, Judges chapter 2, or or I will bring the sword against you, or there will be plagues, etc. There's usually some pronouncement of judgments, but here we don't find that. There's the indictment, this is who I am, but you have not obeyed. But there's not the statement of judgment that we typically see with the the prophetic word that the prophets bring. And that is a noticeable omission in light of what follows. The author has set us up to anticipate additional judgments. But instead, we find the calling of Gideon. I like how Daniel Block explains what the narrator is doing in this text. He writes, the, the narrator's purpose in inserting the, this prophetic scolding at this point is to set the stage for the call of Gideon. If God raises a deliverer for Israel, it is an entirely gracious act. There has been no hint of repentance, nor any announcement of divine forgiveness. Yahweh's subsequent intervention on Israel's behalf must be interpreted in light of the people's persistent apostasy. If God raises a deliverer for Israel, it is an entirely gracious act. So this shows us just another example, another reminder about the graciousness of our God. His graciousness, His mercy to a people who do not deserve it. God is the one who initiates in salvation. And He works 
in the hearts of His people to bring His people to Himself. This is what He does here. He extends His mercy to Israel by calling out a man that you or I would not have chosen. If we had looked at all the men in, in Israel, Gideon would not be our choice man. And yet that is the one that God has called out. Let's keep reading to see Gideon's calling. Gideon's calling, beginning with verse 11. Now, the angel of the Lord came out, came in, and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizrite, the Abazrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of, o mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wondrous deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If, if now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not prepare. Depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. Instead of a statement of condemnation and judgment upon the people that we would expect, we immediately find the calling of Gideon. We find the angel of the Lord coming and speaking to this man. Now, from our previous discussions, we have noted and identified the angel of the Lord as the pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. We've discussed that the word angel means messenger or envoy. It does not technically, doesn't have to technically mean an angelic being, but rather can describe someone fulfilling a function, including human beings. Well, here when we see the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, we believe that that is Jesus Christ revealing himself to his people, speaking directly with his people. And here he comes and he visits Gideon. Gideon is introduced in a way that reveals a little bit about who he is, right? What the, his actions, what is he doing? He is, he is tread, beating out wine in the, or beating out wheat rather, in the wine presses, it says, to hide it from the Midianites. Gideon's name means hacker or hewer. It's the idea of chopping something. It's, he's appropriately named, as we will see before too long. But, but we see his actions here. What is he doing? He is beating out wheat in the wine press. What are wine presses used for? Making wine. <laughs> that is their purpose. They're designed to, there's, there's the vat that is there. They're, they're supposed to crush the grapes and the juice would come out. And what is Gideon using it for? Beating out wheat. That right there is a strange 
It's a strange thing. If you're familiar with how wheat grows, it grows on stalks, and each grain is encased in a little husk. That husk is often called chaff once it is broken apart. The most efficient way at, at that time to get rid of the husk and to preserve the grain, they would beat the stalks or they would, they would hit it with rocks. They would do different things to break the husk and the, the grain loose from the stalk and break it apart from each other. But now you still have to sort through all the seeds and get, get, the, get the grain out. Well, how you would do that, rather than sorting through and trying to pick out the individual grains of head, you would, you would gather it in a basket throw it into the air. The wind would catch the husk because it's light and, and, and feathery of sorts, and then it would just kind of blow it away, and the seed that was heavier would fall back down, and you would have your grain. This would usually take place at a location often called the threshing floor. It would be a place out in the open where there would have been perhaps a, a large stone that they could beat the, the wheat against in order for it, it to break apart. But it would be up on a high place where the wind would blow to carry the chaff away. By contrast, a wine press would be more tucked away and protected from the elements. Now we have to ask the question, why isn't Gideon doing this task at the threshing floor and he's doing it in the wine press instead? Well, the text tells us, it says it's to hide us, to hide it from the Midianites. Gideon knows that if he's up on that high place where the wind is going to blow, that the Midianites are going to see him. And what are the Midianites going to do when they see him? Oh, there's food, and they're going to come take it. So Gideon is afraid. Gideon is hiding. He's doing this chore in secret to avoid being discovered by the Midianites so he doesn't get whacked. And here comes the angel of the Lord, declaring that the Lord is with him. Verse 12 says that the, that the angel of the Lord speaks and says, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. few interesting details about this interaction. He calls him that mighty man of valor. Again, this is Gideon. He, he's hiding in a wine press, beating out wheat doesn't exactly strike you as a mighty warrior, right? This is not that kind of guy that you're thinking of. This man is, hide, is, is hiding. This may be both a moment of irony, but also a foreshadowing of, of what God intends to do through Gideon. Second, notice Gideon's response. He says, sir, I, how can you say this? You, you, you say the Lord is with me. How can you say that? Look at the plight that we're in. Look at this situation. Look around you. Where is God? From a human perspective, that response is certainly understandable. And in fact, in, in some ways, he's absolutely right. He says in verse 13, The Lord has now forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. That's accurate. That's exactly what has happened. God has done that because that's what God said He would do if the people rebelled against him. But Gideon was so focused on the present circumstances that he failed to see the messenger's point. Because notice how the angel of the Lord responds. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours 
and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? He essentially ignores the objection that Gideon raised and gives this command, go in this might of yours and save Israel. You know, when I first read that line, go in this might of yours, and just as, it's, as it reads in the English, the first thought that came to my head was that Gideon was, he made this impassioned speech and this reply about, oh, woe is us, look at the situation that we're in, and God has forsaken us. And then the angel of the Lord replies, okay, I love that energy. Now take that and use it against the Midianites. That's, that's the impression that I initially got. But as I began studying and looking into this, that's not always being communicated. <laughs> the might isn't grounded in Gideon. It's grounded in the Lord's presence and his enablement. He says, you possess might. How is that the case? Well, aren't I the one sending you? That is what the angel is communicating. Go in this might that you possess. You possess strength. How? How can that be? Well, it's because I'm the one sending you. I'm giving you a command here, and I am strengthening you for the task. It's not because there's some strength, some mighty valor in within Gideon himself. No, it's because God is strengthening Gideon for that task. Therefore, go. Calls to mind to me the Great Commission. When Jesus says, go make disciples, what's the verse immediately before it? He says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, on the basis of this authority, because I am with you, therefore you go and make disciples. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And that's the idea of what's being communicated here. We don't go forth in our own strength. We go in the might that is given to us for the task that He has laid in front of us. And so He says to Gideon, go. You have might because I am the one sending you. Gideon, however, is not convinced. He's still resistant to this idea. How can I do that? How can I say my, my, my family is the weakest of all the clans? We're the weakest clan and the weakest family with, or the weakest tribe and the weakest family within that tribe. The weakest family of all the weak families. How is this supposed to work? Like this isn't going to, no one's going to follow me. But again, the answer is found in the Lord's presence. It says, I will be with you. Verse 16, the Lord said to him, but I will be with you. There's this, there's this threefold assurance that this, that he is going to be strengthened for this task. I will be with you. And you shall strike the Midianites as one man. But again, Gideon now, he's, he's, he's heard this repeatedly now. First, there's this declaration, this, hello, Gideon, you mighty man of valor. And then there's this declaration, go in this, mighty, this might of yours and save Israel. And then he says, I will be with you. This, this repeated statements. 
But Gideon now wants a sign. He says, don't move. Let me bring you something. And he brings an offering. Let's, let's continue to read on and see how this turns out, this, this interaction, how it continues to unfold. Verse 19. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat with an unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot. He brought it to him under the terebinth tree and, and presented it and presented them. So Gideon goes, he prepares this meal that really is, you look at what's here, this is a meal fit for a king in a sense. Like this is, he prepares a, a whole goat, he prepares cakes from an ephah of flour. This isn't a small meal, right? This isn't a snack, right? This is a, a this is far too much for any one person to eat or even two people. But there are elements within this that make us know that Gideon knows he's not preparing a meal for just your average person. Like he knows this isn't just, this isn't just a prophet. And again, he's preparing this as a test, right? As, as we saw back in verse 17, he says, If I found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign. Now, how is this person going to show a sign? Well, he's bringing this meal before him. This, this indicates that Gideon is preparing this as a test for the messenger. He knows that there's something special that ought to happen with this meal if this man is truly from the Lord. And so we read what happens in verse 20 and following. The angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes, put them on this rock, and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. So Gideon effectively presents the meal as a sacrificial offering to this person, as a, as a sacrifice before the Lord, and it is accepted in a miraculous and astounding way. Fire spring, springs up from the rocks, and the angel of the Lord vanishes immediately. It is at this moment that Gideon comes to realize that he's not been talking to just, again, your average prophets. And this isn't just some guy claiming to speak for the Lord. This is the angel of the Lord. This is the pre-incarnate appearance. This is Yahweh. Of course, this fear fills him with even more fear. Or if he was afraid before, well, he's absolutely terrified now. Alas, he says. I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face, and so he fears for his life. He spoke with fear and doubt before, but now he is terrified. And in many ways, he should be, right? He, he should be. As he, as he stood before the living God, he should be afraid. By all accounts, he should die. But God has mercy. And he gives three assurances to Gideon after this incident in verses, verse 23 and 24. The Lord said to him, peace be to you. Do not fear, 
you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abiezrites. Peace, don't fear, you shall not die. Gideon should have died. But God had mercy, which is really what I believe this whole section is about. The Israelites didn't deserve a deliverer, but God has mercy. Gideon is doing his work in secret for fear, perhaps even as a coward. But God has mercy. Gideon is not a valiant warrior, and yet God has mercy. Gideon continually doubts the presence of the Lord, but God has mercy. Gideon objects to being God's instrument, but God has mercy. Gideon insists on a sign to test God. That's something he's going to do again before we're done with Gideon in the book of Judges. And God has mercy. Gideon is hardly a man of outstanding faith, and yet God shows his mercy to him throughout this whole narrative. At the beginning of the Gideon narrative, the narrator sets things up in such a way that we expect to see God's judgment coming upon the people because they continue to be all the more apostate as they continue on their cycles. And yet he shows mercy to those who least deserve it, and chose an instrument of deliverance who is likewise ill-deserving of such an honor. He shows mercy not because the people were repenting, because they weren't. Not because the people had this great change of heart, because they didn't. They were still apostate. But God did this to show his mercy. He did this because he is a long-suffering and merciful God. Even as the people wax worse and worse, even as the judges that are raised up for deliverance fail to live holy lives themselves, God remains patient and merciful to the people he has called into the lands. Some people want to idolize Gideon and, and see his great accomplishments that he did and we'll see some of, the, some of the things. And again, there are some things about Gideon's life that are truly commendable. But he's not the king that Israel needs. He is not the leader that Israel so desperately needs. But God uses Gideon to preserve his people so that one day the king that they do need, one day that king would come. And God used Gideon to preserve his people so that one day the king of all kings would come. And that king would do everything and be everything that all of these judges failed to be and do. Today is Palm Sunday. Jesus rode into Jerusalem being hailed as king. And those same crowds would later turn against him and cry out, crucify him. 
Why? Why did Jesus lay down His life in that manner? This is the King that we've been waiting for for so long. He's finally come. He laid down His life not because the people deserve it, not because we deserve it, but because God is merciful. God is gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. God has shown forth His mercy to those who deserve His wrath. Because though our sins are many, His mercy is more. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this account of Gideon, this this early stage where we just see the, the mercy of you on display, calling out a man who did not deserve to be a leader in Israel, saving your people when they deserved to be destroyed and wiped out. Even before they repented and before they turned from their wicked ways, you were merciful and gracious unto them and preserved them from their oppressors. And even now today, Lord, you preserve us. Though we do not deserve your preserving hand, you give us our every breath, our every heartbeat, every time our our eyes blink, every time we move. It all comes from you. It is a gift from your hand. You preserve us physically, but Lord, you also preserve our spirits. You have saved us. You have saved our souls, all those who have faith in you, not because we deserve it, because we don't, but because you are the one who has mercy. So we thank you for this. We praise you for this. I pray, Lord, that we would rejoice and we would praise you for your mercy all the more because your mercy is greater than all of our sin. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.